Part three, chapter thirteen of Garcia Moreno by Augustin Berth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. The Assassination it is impossible in these days to ignore the existence of a secret society called freemasonry of which the secret consists in uniting itself with the devil to destroy the reign of god upon the earth for a long time they dissimulated their infamous designs under the specious guise of philanthropy but now they work openly they cried with voltaire which in plain english means destroy jesus christ clericalism is the great enemy exclaimed the other day one of their heads but when he used the word clericalism, he meant Christianity. The horror of the horrible ritual of the sects may be summed up in the words of Proudhon, one of their leaders. Listen to my words. The first duty of every intelligent man is to drive the idea of God from his mind and conscience. Lying spirit, imbecile God, thy reign is at an end. Seek for other victims among the beasts. Thou art dethroned and broken in pieces come satan come though calumniated by priests and kings let me embrace thee and hug thee to my breast thou knowest me for a long while and i know thee god is hypocrisy and lies god is tyranny and misery god is the real spirit of evil thou alone o satan canst a noble work and place the seal on virtue all freemasons do not use as strong language as proudhon but all have in their hearts the same hatred of good and the same love of evil Leo Thirteenth exclaims in one of his encyclicals, They do not attempt to hide it any longer. They are audacious enough to lift their arm against God, and openly plot to deprive the world of all faith in Jesus Christ and his benefits. We can easily understand, therefore, what was their rage against Garcia Marino, who had exposed and defeated their schemes throughout Ecuador. All the Freemason newspapers throughout the world, in Europe as in America, held him up to public execration, and finally he was solemnly condemned to death by the great council of the order. The plots for his assassination became so notorious that many people implored him to take extra precautions and not to expose so precious a life needlessly. But he would not listen. In answer to a religious who wrote to him on the subject, he wrote, I am very grateful for your charitable advice, though it tells me nothing new. I know very well that certain men wish for my death, but these wishes only injure those who form them. Tell the person who gave you the warning that I fear God, but God alone. I forgive my enemies with all my heart. I would do good to them if I knew who they were, and if they gave me the opportunity. To Don Ignacio and other devoted friends he made similar answers. To the editor of the National, who denounced these canes, comparing Garcia Marino to Abel, and adding, Abel forgave his brother, but his blood did not the less cry out to heaven for vengeance. Strike, then, O canes, but know that God will avenge his own. Garcia Marino wrote, saying, This is not the language a government should hold which is striving to do what is right without fear of the consequences. If these men desire to kill me, let them come. They will not slaughter us as timid sheep. God will be our buckler against the enemy. If I fall, nothing can be more desirable or glorious for a Catholic, for the recompense is an eternal one. The inhabitants of Quito, however, watched with increasing anxiety nightly meetings in the house of the Peruvian minister of men who were well-known enemies of the president. There was Polanco, a man of good family, who had intended to become a monk, but had given up all religious practices and now vowed eternal hatred to Garcia Moreno. Then Moncayo, who had passed some years in a religious community, and to whom, when he came out, the president had refused office. Camposano, an old conspirator, Andrade, the son of a peasant of Ibarra, Cornejo, a young man of respectable family, 
formerly devoted to Garcia Marino, but now perverted by the sects. Lastly, a granader named Rayo, who had held an important post from which he had been dismissed by the president for malpractices, and now had turned Sadler to gain his livelihood, but who had vowed eternal vengeance against the man who had detected and punished him. Another man, named Cortez, arrived at Quito under suspicious circumstances, and spent his time at the Peruvian embassy, in declaiming against despots and singing hymns of liberty. He pushed his insolence so far that Garcia Marino ordered him to leave the territory of the Republic. But the conspirators continued their secret correspondence with their accomplices at Lima, and that in the most audacious manner. The aide-de-camp of Garcia Marino found one day certain letters on his desk, waiting for the government stamp. Suspecting their nature, Garcia Marino opened them and found they were for Urbina, from the revolutionists of Quito. Monsignor Montanelli, in the same way, being at Guayaquil in the month of July, 1875, on his way to embark for Europe, opened a packet of letters addressed to him from Lima, and found they were intended for Polanco, to whom he unsuspectedly forwarded them through a Jesuit father. They contained the last instructions of the lodges. No one could disguise the imminence of the danger, and the prelate, who was devoted to Garcia Marino, said to him, It is a matter of public notoriety that the sects have publicly condemned you and that their assassins are sharpening their poignards. For the love of God, take some precautions. And what precautions do you suggest, replied the President, never to go out without an escort? And who will defend me against the escort, if they, too, should be corrupted? I would rather place my trust in God. And he added the words of the psalmist, Nisi Dominus custodiet civitatem, frusta vigilat qui custodit eum. It was under these sad circumstances that he wrote his last letter to the sovereign pontiff, which breathed throughout the piety of a saint and the courage of a martyr. I implore your benediction, most holy father, having, without any merit on my part, been again elected president of this Catholic Republic. The new presidential era only begins on the 30th of August, when I shall have to take the oath to the Constitution, and when it will be my duty to give official notice of it to your holiness but I wish to let you know it to-day, so as to obtain from heaven the light and strength which I need now, more than at any other time, to remain the devoted son of our holy Redeemer, and the loyal and obedient servant of his vicar. To-day, when all Masonic lodges, excited by those in Germany and Belgium, utter against me the vilest and most horrible calumnies, and are moving heaven and earth to find means to assassinate me, I need more than ever the divine protection, so as to live and die for the defense of our holy religion and of this great republic, which God has called upon me to govern. What greater happiness can be awarded to me, most holy father, than to see myself detested and calumniated for the love of our divine Redeemer? But what still greater happiness would it be if your benediction could obtain from heaven the grace to shed my blood for him, who, being God, has deigned to shed every drop of his at the pillar and upon the cross? He then asked two favors of the Pope, one, some nuns for the leper hospital, the other, the relics of St. Peter Claver, abandoned at Carthagena. Your Holiness, he continued, has beatified this apostle of Catholic charity, and cannot wish his precious remains to lie in a place where they are neither appreciated nor venerated. Our poor Ecuador neither seeks for nor desires other protection than that of God, and will be too happy to have, then, another advocate in heaven." Full of these holy thoughts, Garcia Marino set himself quietly to work to prepare his message for the coming Congress, which was to open on the 10th of August. On the Feast of St. Anne, 26th July, who was the patroness of his wife, among the many letters of congratulation which she received was one warning her to watch with still greater vigilance over her husband's life, 
as his assassins were determined before long to carry out their threats. On this occasion his friends again renewed their entreaties for him to take measures lest he should fall into their hands. He only replied joyously, Well, what does a traveller wish but to arrive at the end of his journey, or a sailor but to see the shores of his own country after a bad and dangerous voyage? I cannot consent to have a guard. My fate is in the hands of God, who will take me out of this world when and how it may please him. On the 2nd of August a religious wrote to him from Latacunga that the conspiracy would break out in a few days, and that a man named Rayo was amongst them. Rayo, exclaimed Garcia Moreno, it must be an infamous calumny. I saw him in Holy Communion only a few days ago. A Christian cannot be an assassin. In fact, this man has so dissembled his villainy that the President mistrusted him so little that, wishing to take a ride with his boy on the 10th of August, he had ordered a new saddle for the little Gabriel from this very rail. On the 4th of August he wrote a last letter to his friend, Juan Aguirre, who, ever since his college days, had been his intimate friend. A few months before, on the eve of starting for Europe, Juan had come to wish him good-bye. After a long and intimate talk, Garcia Marina accompanied his friend to the door, and embracing him warmly, exclaimed, I feel we shall never see each other again. It is our last good-bye. Then turning aside not to show the tears which rushed into his eyes, he repeated, Adieu, we shall never meet again on earth. On the 4th of August, he reminded his friend of this presentiment, and added, I am about to be assassinated, but I am happy to die for my faith. We shall meet one another in heaven. On the 5th of August, wishing to finish his message to Congress, he told his aide-de-camp not to admit any one. Towards evening a priest arrived and implored to see the President. The officer refused, but the priest insisted, saying that the communication he had to make could not be put off till the next day. Being admitted, he said, You have been warned that your death was decreed by the Freemasons, but you have not been told when. I have just heard that the assassins are going to try and carry out their plot at once, perhaps tomorrow. For God's sake, take your measures accordingly. I have already received similar warnings, replied Garcia Moreno calmly, and after having calmly reflected, I have come to the conclusion that the only measure I can take is to prepare myself to appear before God. And he then went on with his work as if a message of no importance had been given to him. It was remarked, nevertheless, that he passed the greater part of the night in prayer. The next day was the 6th of August, the Feast of the Transfiguration. At six o'clock in the morning he went as usual to the Dominican church to hear Mass. It was the first Friday of the month, the day specially dedicated to the Sacred Heart. With many others of the faithful, the President drew near to the altar and received the God of the Eucharist as the Viaticum for his last journey, for after having received so many warnings he could not doubt that he was in danger of death. He prolonged his thanksgiving and prayer till eight o'clock. The conspirators had been watching him all the morning, and were stationed in the square opposite the church in little groups, where they remained during Mass. They meant to attack him on coming out of church, but were deterred by the number of people who came out at the same time. He therefore came back safely to his own house, spent some time with his wife and son, and then went to his own room to give the last touches to his message, which he was to communicate that day to his ministers. Towards one o'clock, with his manuscript in his hand, he went with his aide-de-camp towards the palace, stopping on his way at a relation of his wife's, whose house was on the Plaza Major. As the heat was extreme, he took some cooling drink, which put him in a perspiration, and obliged him to button up his coat on going out. An insignificant act, which nevertheless had fatal consequences. 
At this moment the conspirators were in a cafe in the square watching the movements of their victim. As soon as they perceived him, they went out, one by one, and hid behind the columns of the peristyle, each in the place assigned to him by Polanco, who himself went to the other side of the square to watch the event. The president, before going to the palace, wished to adore the Blessed Sacrament, which that day was exposed in the cathedral. Footnote. The cathedral and the palace or government house form one of the angles of the Plaza Major. In footnote. For a long time he remained kneeling on the floor of the church, absorbed in recollection and prayer, as, at the approach of night, created objects disappear, and nature seems to repose in a solemn calm. God, at the supreme moment, dispelled all earthly thoughts from the soul of his servant, and drew him nearer to himself, in the repose of a celestial union. One of the assassins, Rayo, impatient of a delay which might prove fatal to their plans, sent a messenger to the president, to say that he was wanted for some pressing business. Garcia Marino rose at once, left the cathedral, and had already made three or four steps towards the door of the palace, when Rayo, drawing a huge cutlass, called in the country a machete, from under his cloak, inflicted a terrible wound on his shoulder. "'Vile assassin!' cried the president, trying in vain to seize his revolver in his buttoned-up coat, while Rayo inflicted a fresh wound on his head, and the other conspirators fired at him with their revolvers." At that moment a young man sprang upon Rayo and tried to disarm him, but was wounded himself, and had to let go his hold. Pierced with balls, and with his head bleeding, the heroic victim still tried to defend himself and disengage his revolver, when Rayo, with a double blow of his cutlass, severed his left arm and cut off his right hand. A second discharge threw the martyr to the bottom of the steps, where, stretched on the ground and covered with blood, he remained motionless when the ferocious Rayo again assaulted him, crying out, Die, destroyer of liberty. Dios no morare, murmured for the last time the Christian hero. All this was the work of a moment. The noise of the firing drew everyone to the windows, while a panic filled every heart. The public functionaries barricaded the palace, thinking that they were all about to be murdered. The aide-de-camp had rushed off to the barracks for help, while Polanco, Cornejo, and Andrade took to flight, crying, The tyrant is dead! Women flew to help the president from their shops under the arcade, rending the air with their cries. In a few minutes the square was filled with people, the soldiers in vain seeking for the assassins, the priest of the cathedral hurrying to give the last consolation of religion to the murdered man, if he were still breathing. He could not answer them or move, but his eyes showed that he was not unconscious. He was carried into the cathedral and laid at the feet of Our Lady of Seven Dollars. A surgeon tried to stop his gaping wounds, but it was useless. His livid and discolored lips showed that he was on the point of expiring. A priest asked him to forgive his murderers. His dying look answered that he had done so. The pardon of God descended upon him with the absolution. Extreme unction was administered to him in the midst of the sobs and tears of all the assistants, and a quarter of an hour later he expired. During this quarter of an hour of agony, another scene took place in the square. A ball, intended for the president, struck Rayo in the leg, so that he could not escape with the rest. Thinking to provoke a radical demonstration, he brandished his weapon in the air, glorying in having immolated the tyrant. One of the soldiers, furious at the death of his beloved general, pointed his gun at him. "'You have no right to kill me!' screamed Rayo. "'And you, what right had you to assassinate my master?' replied the soldier, and shot him dead on the spot. His body, seized by the furious people, was dragged with every indignity, by a cord round his neck, 
through the streets of the city, and finally thrown into a public cesspool, only to be buried afterwards in a spot reserved for parasized and excommunicated persons. Large checks on the Bank of Peru, found in the pockets of the assassin, prove that the venerable order of Freemasons, like the great council of the Jews, does not spare its gold to the Judas it employs. In the evening of that fateful day, the dean of the faculty of medicine, Greyrod, made an official report on the body of the president. The martyr had received five or six bullets and fourteen blows of the terrible cutlass, one of which had pierced his brain. He had, in fact, seven or eight mortal wounds. On the breast of the president was a relic of the true cross, the scapular of the passion, and that of the sacred heart. Round his neck they found his rosary, to which a medal was attached, representing on one side Pope Pius IX, and on the other the Vatican Council. The effigy of Pius IX was stained with his blood, as if to prove by this touching symbolism that the love of the church in its head had caused the death of the glorious martyr. An agenda of his daily notes was also found upon him. On the last page he had, on that very day, written in pencil these few words, which are worthy of a saint. My Saviour, Jesus Christ, give me greater love for thee in profound humility, and teach me what I should do this day for thy greater glory and service. If we ask ourselves why God permitted that the blood of one whom he had created expressly, as it seemed, for the regeneration of his country and the triumph of the church, should be shed by vile criminals, we can only answer that it pleases God to glorify, in a special manner, those who have the most bravely confessed his truth. The supreme glory is to seal with one's blood the truth one has defended by word and deed. God gave this glory to his son, to the martyrs of the church throughout all ages, and to Garcia Moreno. But did the people, so devoted to him, deserve this chastisement? No, but let them take courage. As the blood of the martyr was the seed of the church, so the blood of Garcia Moreno will produce, not only in Ecuador, but in other nations, true champions of the people and of the church of God. A man dies, but God does not. Deus nomure. End of Book 3, Chapter 13